0: Welcome to Andrew's audio tours of Early Christian Rome, the podcast that helps you see how Rome's most famous sites are connected to the New Testament and the early church. This series of tours is designed to be used on the ground. Listen along on these tours and I'll walk you through what you see while you're standing at a particular spot in Rome. These are video podcasts, which means that they have images embedded at certain points. Depending on the device you're using, you should be able to see some photos on your screen that will help you get the most out of this tour. Standing between the Arch of Constantine and the Colosseum is a good spot to experience two events which had a tremendous impact on the Christian faith. In the Colosseum, we see a structure built by the Emperor Vespasian, who captured Jerusalem and destroyed its Jewish temple. In the Arch, we see a monument to the Emperor Constantine, who began the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Begin your tour by standing on the north side of the Arch of Constantine. From this one spot, you can view a great deal of history without any walking. So just relax, enjoy the views as you listen, and soak up the history in this spot. Restart this podcast when you're on the north side of the arch. As you stand facing the Arch of Constantine, the Colosseum should be behind you to your left. Let's take a minute to orient you to what's around. You can see a lot from here, and it's material that spans several hundred years. Not all of it existed at one time. In front of you is the Arch of Constantine, dedicated on July 25th, 315 AD. We'll come back to this in a minute. Turning to your left, you can't miss the Colosseum. This is a much older structure, begun in the year 70 AD and inaugurated 10 years later. Turning further to the left is a large grassy area. The area closest to you contains the circular foundations of the Meta a large fountain built in the early 90s AD. Farther behind this fountain was the Colossus of Nero, which was a 100 foot tall statue of the Emperor Nero built in the 60s AD. It's a little known fact that the Colosseum takes its name from the Colossus of Nero, The Colosseum was originally called the Flavian Amphitheater, and when the Colossus of Nero eventually collapsed, the name was transferred to the nearby amphitheater. Turning further to your left, you can see a line of columns and structures on top of a large retaining wall. These are the remains of the Temple of Venus in Rome, built by the Emperor Hadrian and dedicated in 135. It was probably the largest temple in the city. The road just below the retaining wall leads into the Roman Forum. Through the trees, you might just be able to glimpse the Arch of Titus, which was inaugurated around 82 AD to commemorate the suppression of a Jewish revolt and the destruction of Jerusalem. Direct your attention to the Colosseum as we begin with the Emperor Vespasian and the destruction of the Jewish Temple. From here, you're looking at the southwest corner of the Colosseum, which is unfortunately one of the worst preserved sections. The exterior wall on the entire south side had collapsed by the 1300s, so what you're seeing from this viewpoint are some of the interior walls that remain. It's worth walking around to the north side later to get a view of the full four stories of the original exterior wall. A close look at the north wall reveals something that most visitors miss, One reason that the Colosseum is so visually appealing is that the architecture changes as you ascend. It breaks up the visual monotony of a tall building. The first story has Tuscan columns, the second story has Ionic columns, and the third and fourth floors have a simplified version of Corinthian columns. The bottom three floors also include arcades, which are lines of repeating arches between the columns. The fourth floor deletes the arcade and inserts a small window after every second column. Surprisingly, the story of the Colosseum begins in Israel. In the year 66, a massive revolt erupted in the Roman province of Judea. The Emperor Nero dispatched his general Vespasian to bring the province back under Roman control. The campaign was hard, it cost tens of thousands of lives, but Vespasian had almost succeeded when the unpopular Emperor Nero was overthrown. In the aftermath, Vespasian's troops eventually acclaimed him as the rightful emperor. Vespasian came back to Rome to claim imperial power, but he left his son, Titus, to finish the reconquest of Judea. Titus eventually captured Jerusalem, destroyed the Jewish temple, and brought back 55 tons of gold and silver looted from it. If you stop by the Roman Forum and visit the Arch of Titus, you can see a carving of Titus's troops carrying the menorah and other temple treasures in triumph through the streets of Rome. It's a moment with huge resonance in the Christian story and it's mentioned frequently in the New Testament. For example, in Mark chapter 13, there's a moment where Jesus is in the temple and one of his disciples points out the large stones that the temple is built from. In reply, Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Fresh off the destruction of the Jewish temple, Vespasian began construction of the Colosseum as a triumphal monument commemorating the power of Rome. It was by far the largest amphitheater in the entire Roman world. An estimated 100,000 cubic meters of travertine limestone and 300 tons of iron clamps were used in its construction. Look at the arches at ground level. These were the entrances and exits. Eighty entrances, each methodically numbered to help spectators find their seats, allowed 50,000 or more men and women to watch wild animal hunts in the morning, public executions at midday, and gladiatorial fights in the afternoon. Blood sports like these were practiced in amphitheaters around the Roman world, and they were a big part of ancient life. It's worth visiting the inside of the Colosseum to learn more but since gladiatorial games aren't directly connected to Christian history, we're not going to cover them here. If you do venture inside, you'll see a cross standing at floor level on the short axis of the north side, inside the box where the emperor and the Vestal Virgins once sat. This cross reflects the sacred nature of the site for the Catholic Church, which believes that Christians were martyred in the amphitheater. While it's certainly possible that some Christians were killed in the amphitheater at some point over the hundreds of years it operated, there is no explicit historical documentation that it happened. Rather, written sources record martyrdoms at other locations around the city. It wasn't until the 1500s that the Colosseum came to be venerated as a place of martyrdom. But as you stand in the shadow of the massive Colosseum, The main thing to remember is that this building exists as a direct result of the first Jewish revolt. From an inscription that's still visible in the Colosseum today, we know for a fact that the Colosseum was financed by Vespasian with his share of the Jewish plunder. It also seems probable that some of the tens of thousands of Jewish slaves captured in the war were forced to help with construction, though that's not explicitly attested by any historical records so far. But in any case, it's an indisputable fact that the Colosseum rose up precisely because the Jewish temple was torn down. In this spot, over 2,000 miles away from Jerusalem, you're as connected to the lost Jewish temple as you can ever be. Now turn your attention back to the arch as we consider the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Constantine I is more commonly known by his honorific title of Constantine the Great. It was a title that he gained long after his death, but for all of his many flaws, he certainly seems to have deserved to be called the Great. The arch that you're looking at is the largest one in the Roman world. It was dedicated by the Roman Senate to honor the Emperor Constantine on July the 25th 315 A.D. While it was a very nice idea and a nice gesture, the actual execution leaves a little bit to be desired. This arch is made largely from bits of old monuments that are cobbled together, in some cases with the heads of previous emperors recut to resemble the head of Constantine. That's why the different elements of the arch are all slightly different colors. For the Christian viewer, the most immediately noticeable element may be the two winged figures in the corner above the central arch. These look like angels, but in reality, they are depictions of the Roman goddess Victoria, who is the personification of victory. In their hands, these victories hold battle trophies. For all his civil achievements, Constantine made his name as a military leader. Military victory was near and dear to his heart. Your eye might be drawn next to the well-preserved statues standing atop the columns. There are four on each side for a total of eight. Which one is Constantine? Actually, none of them. These are men captured in Dacia. They're all sculptures that are taken from one of Trajan's monuments that commemorated Trajan's successful wars in Dacia. The best place to catch a glimpse of Constantine is above the two small arches. Directly above each arch on each side, you'll see a horizontal band of carvings. The band above the left arch shows Constantine standing on the rostra the speaking platform, and the forum, which you can still see today. He's addressing the people of Rome after taking control of the city for the first time. The band above the right arch shows Constantine giving gifts of money to citizens. Now, walk around to the opposite side of the arch to see one last carving that shows why this arch is here in the first place. You should now be on the south side of the arch, with the Colosseum ahead of you to your right. Look at the band of sculpture just above the small arch on the right side. It's a bit worn, so it's hard to make out, but if you look closely, at the top of the carving you can see soldiers on horseback, attacking figures below them in a body of water. This scene depicts the most famous episode in Constantine's life, his victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge on the outskirts of Rome. In the year 312, Constantine was engaged in a civil war against a man named Maxentius for control of the western half of the Roman Empire. They fought their climactic battle at the Milvian Bridge. Constantine won the battle, and it turned into a slaughter when Maxentius's troops were driven into the Tiber River. It's that moment that's depicted here in this carving. What's not depicted is what is reputed to have happened before the battle. A couple of Christian historians record this story, including one who claims that he heard it from the mouth of Constantine himself. The story goes that Constantine was with his troops when he looked up to the sun and saw a cross above it, along with the Greek words, in, tuto nika, in this conquer. Constantine wasn't sure what that meant, but that night he had a vision in which Christ appeared and told Constantine that he was to use the sign of the cross against his enemies. Constantine then had his soldiers paint a Christian symbol on their shields, though it's not exactly clear what the symbol was or what it looked like. Now, did Constantine really have such a vision the night before his battle with Maxentius? Who knows? What's an indisputable fact is that in the year 312, Constantine did win that battle. And after that battle, he issued a decree that made it legal to practice Christianity within the Roman Empire. Over the rest of his reign, Constantine gave Christianity preferential treatment. He built a multitude of churches, he gave the church land and money, he exempted priests from certain taxes, he promoted Christians in government service, produced Bibles for use in worship, and more. Constantine is one of the most polarizing figures in the ancient world. Some consider Constantine to be a saint and a hero of the Christian faith. Others see him as a man who almost single-handedly subverted the religious concepts of Jesus, Paul, and the first Christians. Now in full disclosure, I'm closer to that second camp. I am not a big fan of Constantine. But it's easy to understand why Constantine wanted to bestow favor on his preferred religion and it's equally easy to see why the church was eager to accept some official support after centuries of opposition. If I was in Constantine's shoes, or in the early church's shoes for that matter, I probably would have made the same choices that they did. But with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to see how the spirit of Christianity was never quite the same after Constantine. Before Constantine, a person had to choose to be a Christian. After Constantine, it was increasingly assumed that everyone in the empire was, or would be, soon, a Christian. Put another way, before Constantine, it took a lot of courage to be a Christian. After Constantine, it took a lot of courage not to be a Christian. And that remained the case for thousands of years. It's only in recent decades that we've begun to move back to a world that is less dominated by cultural Christianity. And the shift to a post-Christian world still isn't complete. Even today, you can go to huge swaths of the Western world and find masses of people who do not attend church regularly, who do not pray regularly, who display very few of the characteristics that we traditionally associate with religion, and yet they still consider themselves Christian. For them, Christianity is just another cultural identifier. Being Christian is like being American or being European or being middle class. As you stand here beneath the carvings of the man who launched that link between Christianity and culture, it's worth asking yourself, is that sort of mentality what Peter and Paul had in mind when they first came to the city 2,000 years ago? That's all for now. Gavin Spell is our audio engineer for these tours and he also performs our music. If you have feedback about these tours, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at andrew at That's A-N-D-R-E-W at A-N-D-R-E-W-G-A-R-N-E-T-T.org. I hope that we meet again soon and for both of our sakes, when we do, I hope that we're standing in the streets of the Eternal City.